Welcome to Lab Chats, a podcast from the team at LabStats. I'm Tyler Jacobson, your host for today's episode. Each week, we'll sit down with technology leaders in higher education to get the latest buzz and insights while we discuss current events, trends, problems, and solutions. Now let's get into it. With us, we have Eric Kelderman, who is a writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education. And we've got a very interesting topic we want to discuss about politics and education. I wanted to give you a chance, Eric, really quickly to give a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are and and why you are interested in education and politics. Well, uh, I've been at the Chronicle of Higher Education since 2008, so I've had a pretty good run there. A lot of folks, and just as an aside, a lot of folks who come to the Chronicle stay for decades, so I'm I'm by far not the, the longest tenured reporter there, uh, not even close. But I came there in 2008 with a background in covering trends in state politics and policy from Stateline.org, which at the time was a project of the Pew Research Center. I'd still housed at Pew, just in a different part of, of their organization. And before that, I was a, a, an education reporter for the Gazette newspapers in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I covered uh, the Montgomery County public schools largely, a big system with 140,000 students. And uh, my, my actual background, my, my, uh, <laughs> I came to journalism late in life. I have two degrees in music. I have a degree in music theory and composition from the University of Minnesota and an undergraduate degree in music from uh, Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. After a few years of uh, working as a professional musician, I, I decided to go into journalism, went to uh, the University of Maryland, got a, a master's degree. Uh, they have a very practical-based uh, program there. It took me about a year and a half and, and launched into journalism from there. So a lot of state policy and politics in my background as a journalist and then at, at the Chronicle, I've covered a, a wide range of, of issues, but mostly policy and uh, the ramifications for higher education. Well, that's, that's great. And the article that caught my attention, why I wanted to invite you on, is the one titled, A Democratic-Controlled Senate Will Change Everything But Guarantee Nothing for Higher Ed. And that that title just captured my attention because a lot of our listeners and our customers are IT professionals in higher education and politics is something that is kind of on that periphery that the pol- the political ramifications typically have to do with budgets and and job stability and things like that. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about this most recent election, as as rough and tumble as it was, what does it mean in the short term and then the long term? Because I think that a lot of people have concerns. Where are we at? Like, is this going to be ugly? Is it going to be great? You know, what? And I think that the answer from your article may be a little bit of both. So give me a little bit of overview on the article and and what what the ramifications for education are from this most recent election. Well, just, just a little bit of background, you know, the four years for higher education, the four years under the Trump administration were really defined by a, a couple of different trends. From the president, uh, there was this rhetoric and, and some executive uh, orders uh, on matters that that had a, a pretty negative impact on higher education. And I'm thinking of uh, the travel ban, the, the limitations on international students, 
which uh, cuts into certainly the revenue streams for a lot of universities because uh, for major universities anyway, that recruit a lot of, uh, of foreign students, those, those folks pay, as, as your, many of your <laughs> listeners will know, those folks pay full tuition, right? And that's helpful for your bottom line. Uh, if you can get as many of those people in the door as you can. And also it's good in a, in a larger sort of, uh, I think a, a sense of fostering global understanding, right? Uh, cross-cultural uh, education and things like that. And then there were, there were things like, uh, you know, investigations into and, and actions against universities for their, their enrollment practices, uh, trying to uh, remove race as, a, as a, any sort of factor uh, in, in enrollment, and, and investigations into universities about their free speech pro, uh, policies. So that's one side of it. On the other side, you had the Department of Education, which undertook a very large agenda of deregulating its oversight of higher education. Um, and I don't want to go too much into the weeds, but pulling back a lot of the accountability measures uh, that were enacted under the Obama administration. So that's that's the sort of setup. Now we get to the Biden administration. Uh, on the regulatory front, it's not really clear uh, how the administration is going to approach higher education. I think clearly the rhetoric is going to be much friendlier to higher education. The uh, limitations on uh, international students will likely go away fairly quickly. And then to the point of the article, uh, what happened in Congress, of course, uh, the Democrats will have now a uh, the narrowest of margins in the Senate. Uh, actually, no 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 majority in the Senate. The, the Senate will will be split 50-50, But the Vice President Kamala Harris will provide the uh, the controlling vote there for for the Democrats, which means a couple of things. They get to set the uh, the committee assignments. So Senator Patty Murray will take over as the leader of the Help Committee, which is the committee in the Senate that oversees uh, education issues. And she'll replace uh, Senator Lamar Alexander was the Republican who, who led that committee. He's retiring. But, but Patty Murray has a, has a deep and understanding of, of education issues. She's been on the committee for a long time. And I think uh, the higher education lobbying associations in Washington feel comfortable with her leadership. Uh, so a friendlier face from their point of view, perhaps in the Senate, than, than might have occurred under a Republican uh, majority. And then the next question is, what can, what can Democrats do with that majority in the Senate? They already have a, a majority in the House. Can they actually push through some, some major legislation that will be friendly to higher ed? And the question is, <laughs> uh, probably not, <laughs> uh, with a couple of exceptions. So one big bill that's out there is the Higher Education Act. That's the, the overarching piece of legislation that governs you know, all the spending that the federal government does and regulatory oversight uh, for higher education. That bill uh, essentially expired and has been sort of existing since uh, 2013 in its present form, but it, it, it should be reauthorized. A lot has changed since then. And uh, the government could really do with, with a new look at a lot of the issues around how we hold colleges accountable for their performance, uh, for their graduation rates, for the earnings of their graduates, how much money should we be spending on Pell Grants for low-income students, uh, things like that, right? So uh, unfortunately for Democrats, really what you need to pass any major bills in the Senate is 60 votes to, to stop uh, any threat of a filibuster. Democrats will only have 51, and it seems unlikely that they'll be able to, to get nine Republicans to agree 
to much of anything unless it's unless it's a pretty easy piece of legislation. And the Higher Education Act is not that really. It's very complex, and it deals with some fairly controversial issues like Title IX, uh, which means um, issues about how colleges handle uh, sexual harassment and allegations of, of sexual misconduct by students and faculty members. So it seems like the Higher Ed Act is, is probably off the table. What they could do, perhaps, pass uh, some, some budget issues because then they can use what's called reconciliation, budget reconciliation bill. That only requires a simple majority in the Senate. But it's going to be hard to get everybody to agree even to something like that, even, even in the Democratic caucus. So when you say budget rec- reconciliation bill, how does that impact the individual schools? What does budget reconciliation mean, um, just for those of us that are not politically versed in the, in the way you are? Right. Well, b- budget bills can't be uh, subject to the filibuster in the Senate. So there's, a, there's this thing called reconciliation, and there's special rules around this. In general, it has to be revenue neutral, although they can get around that. So if you increase spending in one area, like for uh, higher education, you might have to cut in other areas, right? And that's tricky, right? Because every senator, right, represents states that have their own interests. And if you're cutting something that affects uh, one state and it helps another, there's, there's tension there, right? Uh, everybody wants their piece of the pie uh, in politics, and, and that's, that's how government works. So they can do that with a simple majority, but uh, but it gets it gets hard, and and uh, but I think that's probably the vehicle that Democrats are going to have to use to get uh, anything major through uh, the Senate. But it has to do with spending, so you can't really do a, a higher education reauthorization reauthorization act because there are, there are issues that that are not directly related to how the government allocates money. But I think one way that the the Democrats can succeed here potentially, is, is by pushing through another coronavirus stimulus act. And that, I think, is going to be probably the, the first <clears throat> major priority of the Biden administration, is to push through. And, and it's, there's already been some news coverage of this. President-elect Biden, uh, soon to be President Biden, has, has recommended a $1.9 trillion uh, coronavirus stimulus bill, there will be, uh, and I, I, I apologize, I can't remember the number offhand, but uh, some portion of that is some some billions of that is set to go to higher education, and I, I apologize for not knowing that that number right off the top of my head. And that will be the way that that higher ed will will be directly impacted. Probably, I would say within the first couple of months of the new Congress uh, and the new administration, that money will go to uh, financial aid probably for students. Uh, there will probably be some institutional money similar to the, to the previous coronavirus stimulus bills, right, where uh, Congress split the money between uh, direct aid to students and aid to institutions, right? And institutions have, have uh, used that money uh, in a lot of cases uh, for, for your folks, right, to build up uh, their technology infrastructure because everybody is studying remotely or a lot of people are studying remotely now. And so uh, you need better servers on campus, right? And faculty need to be trained in how to use Zoom effectively for classrooms, and they, the classroom, the individual faculty members need better technology maybe to, to do that instruction in, in their classroom or, or within their home, wherever they're conducting their classes. So uh, that's how that money will get to, to colleges and universities. Uh, and I think, I think there's probably a good chance that Biden will get 
something in, in the new year uh, or in the under the under after he takes office. The question is, there's a lot of horse trading that happens after after a bill gets introduced, and and we'll see. It took you know whatever eight months between the the last two coronavirus stimulus bills, and so it won't be an easier simple process. And that's exactly what I was kind of seeing. Is I think that a lot of people are. I, enrollment. Uh, I've seen statistics on on freshman enrollment being down anywhere from you know twenty five to thirty percent, and so that's a budgetary pressure. And the pandemic was not budget friendly to any of these programs because they had already um, allocated all their resources for on site education. When they had to pivot to remote access and remote learning, that incurred additional charges that weren't in the budget, and everybody absorb those costs because there wasn't a choice. And now we're moving into the second year of this. And so with enrollment pressures and budgetary pressures coming down, adding to that, and they're up on the renewals for a lot of their stopgap efforts for technology and, and networks and and things like that. So we have an issue that's now layering on top of each other. And from what you're saying, there's going to be something in these bills that are going to help, but it's not likely to be sufficient to be an overall solution. And so what what do you think, like if this $1.9 trillion gets passed and, and it does plug a couple holes in the budgetary dam there, is that something that's going to be, is there going to be a third wave down the road? What are your thoughts on how lasting is the government involvement in this going to be? Well, I, I think there's, uh, you know, there's some optimism that the vaccine will be widespread enough by by fall of 2021 that most colleges will be back uh, to largely in-person instruction. I know, for instance, big systems like the University of California and some others have already announced that they're going to be, they plan to be fully in-person by fall 2021. Now that could change. Right, if the if the vi- vaccine uh, rolls out more slowly, or, or we encounter problems along the way, but you're right, the budgetary issues have been have been hard. I, I do want to speak to the enrollment issue just briefly because, yes, freshman enrollment was down, and I, I know there's a lot of variation uh, within institutions, but when you look at the big picture, the colleges that suffered the worst enrollment downturn were the community colleges. They had the largest overall decline in enrollment and I believe also the largest uh, decline in freshman enrollment. So I think if you look at sectors within higher education, uh, flagship universities, big research universities with diverse streams of revenue are largely, I don't wanna say that they're great in great shape, but they're okay, right? And then as you move down the, the sort of the pecking order as it were, right? Institutions with, with fewer streams of revenue, meaning uh, they don't have you know, big auxiliary enterprise, uh, enterprises that are bringing in a lot of revenue. They don't have a lot of uh, international students. They don't have a lot of research grants, things like that. Then it becomes harder. And, and also, uh, but, but still, I think, you know, enrollment pressures uh, have not impacted uh, institutions, the four-year institutions, I think, as much as had been feared. So it's, it's not great, but it's also not it's also not disastrous for most of them. The, the problem comes that uh, they have a lot of extra expenses, as you know, right? There's the technology expense. There's also, if you're gonna open for in-person instruction, there's a lot of extra expenses for 
uh, personal protective equipment and outfitting classrooms to be safer and spreading people out. So we say time is money, but space is also money, right? So uh, if your lab class used to hold 25 people, right? And you need to spread them out by six, maybe you only get you know uh, a third of those folks in that same room. Uh, and so you have to uh, operate buildings on a longer schedule, right? Um, I've talked to, to higher ed leaders where they've talked about how uh, the number of evening classes has, has uh, you know, doubled or tripled uh, at their institution because they just don't have the space uh, to put everybody in the same room that they used to use. All these sort of mundane things that we, we don't think about, right, typically are happening. And so I think it's on the expense side, uh, what I'm hearing is, is where universities are really struggling the most. We also haven't seen a lot of institutions announcing closure, which I think was was widely feared that we would see this sort of rash of uh, institutions shutting their doors. And there are a lot of small private, you know, uh, colleges that are sort of already on thin ice, and some of those will go away probably. But we haven't seen a, a big wave of that, and maybe next year we see we see more of that. <clears throat> but thankfully uh, for those institutions, it hasn't happened yet. You know, but the, the, of, the, of the, the federal money, you know, that I think will come. And then we have to hope that the vaccine <laughs> gets widespread enough uh, by fall that, that people can go back to, you know, the classroom and, and uh, resume sort of life uh, as, as normal, in, you know, in air quotes, right? That, that all seems like a long ways off and who knows what happens in between. I, I, I would hate to prognosticate. Well, and that's that's one of the other things that I think we've seen is I know there have been several comments made about, you know, shutting things down again in order to, you know, get the virus under control and things like that. Uh, And there was a distinct split in political affiliations with whether that was a good idea or not. Is that something where because of this election, we're likely to see another required closure for the schools that are trying to be on campus? Is that, is that going to play into it? Or is it going to retain, remain something that the individual schools make their assessments on, on what the right way to go is? I think the spring semester will be interesting because obviously case loads are very high across the country and deaths are, are, you know, we're in the 3000 deaths a day range, which is horrific, right? When you think about it. And so the spring semester I think will we'll continue to be a tough one for higher ed in terms of a lot of them have already delayed the start of their winter semester, eliminated spring break, so that if you, if you are coming to campus, you're there, you're not traveling to and from and, and potentially spreading uh, COVID, uh, you know, back in your, in your hometown or whatever. Uh, and we were, I think it'll be likely that we'll see some campuses will start the spring semester and then either have some disruption in, in their uh, activity or, or may have to go entirely remote again during the spring. I don't think it will be as widespread as last year, but, but really who knows? Uh, last year, there were many more unknowns about, about how the virus works. And also I think even, even with the election, I think it is a priority of the Biden administration to not to have a, and by the way, the federal government obviously doesn't determine whether colleges and universities close or open, that's up to either the state uh, in the case of a public institution or uh, the individual institution uh, if, if it's a private place. But, but the states will have a, a lot more say over that than the federal government. But I think the Biden administration, it, at least if you read the clues from, from their messaging on, on K-12 is that they want things to open. They wanna get kids back into schools 
certainly at the K-12 level, and I think at higher ed too. The tricky part is going to be how soon can we get faculty and teachers vaccinated so that they are not at risk. And that's been, um, that's been an issue on campuses, right? Faculty feel like, sure, we'd like to be back in campus. We like teaching in person better, but we don't want to put our own health at risk, right? Certainly older faculty members have talked a lot about that and have, have resisted or, or, you know, I don't want to say, the word isn't really complaint doesn't work, but have, have brought up their concerns about being in the classroom. Uh, and nobody wants them to, to get sick and die, obviously. So, but, but I do think the administration is interested in getting people vaccinated as quickly as possible and getting people back into classrooms. And and I think that that's great. I I especially appreciate the fact that you highlighted that that's largely going to be institutional and state based. And so whether anything comes down as a recommendation, the ultimate decision is going to be a lot more local. Yeah, you know, I'm in Idaho, where you know people are more anxious to get back out and and getting things opened up and things like that. But my own kids that are in college are in exactly the scenario that you described, which is a late start, spring break canceled. And there's a mix of some on campus uh, um, education, but it's it's largely remote. And I, I agree with what you said as far as the, the vaccine is going to be the biggest thing that's going to help people get back to campus and, and back functioning in a quote unquote more normal way. But I think that we're going to see a ripple effect on budgets and, and the types of education, some good and some bad, that there's going to be a substantial change in the way that classes are taught and the resources that students expect. I know in my own household, I've got... Uh, a split decision of whether or not uh, remote learning is a good thing or a bad thing. I have uh, two that have thrived in that environment and two that have not. It has not gone well. And they're, well, as parents, we're looking forward to them getting back into a fully on-site environment where they can have that face-to-face interaction. So um, the last thing I kind of wanted to mention is, or bring up, what are the timelines on on some of these, do you think, as far as you said, some of these are potentially just not going to happen. And then others are tied into this big stimulus bill that we're all watching in the news. Is this something that's going to be weeks or months in the Biden administration? And, and Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, all, all of the above. Uh, and again, it, it depends a lot on... So, you know, if you think, let's, let's, for the sake of argument, let's assume that Democrats have some interest uh, in, in passing this $1.9 trillion stimulus bill quickly, then it's a matter of getting everyone in their caucus, right, sort of on board. And that includes people like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who we would consider, right, a, a moderate or even a conservative Democrat in a very conservative state, and people like Bernie Sanders, <laughs> who are at the you know sort of within the spectrum of the Democratic Party on the other on the opposite side, right? He's actually an independent, so but he caucuses with the Democrats. So they've got this big spectrum within their within their uh, within their own caucus. And I I think the you know the if you were to sort of play sort of a political odds maker here, you would guess that Joe Manchin of West Virginia uh, is going to get a lot <laughs> of what he wants in that bill. 
And the question is, you know, how much uh, of that jibes with what other Democrats want or, or don't want? Uh, that's to be determined. I think fresh off the election, if I were to guess, um, you know, the Biden administration is going to have a little bit of a honeymoon with, with the Democrats. And, but, you know, things come up that are unexpected and that, that politicians have to take note of or deal with. And, and I guess the impeachment trial, if, if it happens, could suck up some time and energy. They decide to have a trial for President Trump. Then that has to be continuous. And you can't really do a lot of other uh, legislative business while that's going on. So that's, that's a question. Uh, the question is, uh, will Republicans uh, join them in this effort? Will they try, try and throw up some procedural roadblocks? Uh, if they're in the minority, it's pretty hard. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, if we look back at, for instance, the, you know, the uh, eight years of President Obama, Republicans uh, obstructed a lot of things that the administration tried to accomplish. Uh, they were in the majority, though, uh, in much of that time. And so, it, but the timing is, uh, is who knows? Um, I did want to go back to one thing you talked about, though, in remote learning and, and think about this, which is I think when I think about sort of the, you know, the outcomes of this, one thing that's interesting to me is how we will reassess online learning in the future. A lot of schools had to put a lot of resources and, and extra training for faculty. And will there be some sort of payoff for that in the long run for some of these institutions that might never have you know, expanded their online uh, learning platforms. A lot of colleges that went online, you know, completely, uh, some, I'm thinking of some of the small privates, right, really had very little, very little in the way of online programming uh, before last spring. And so will there be some payoff for them and for students down the road uh, if we have expanded access to some of those things and, um, and have learned a lot about how it works or doesn't work and it isn't for every student, right? There are some students that need a lot of support uh, that do better in in face-to-face uh, -face, uh, learning. But for those students who, uh, or for certain classes where it's easier to to interact remotely or or to complete the work remotely, I think it will be interesting to follow that and see how much of how much expansion we see of that in the next decade. I agree. I mean, we we've seen that uh, play out in many universities that, that that's going to be the long-term thing. So as we wrap up this conversation, would you say that it's fair that we say, according to the title of your article, and I'll put the link of that in here as well, you know, a democratic controlled Senate will change everything, but guarantee nothing that the bottom line is we're going to see some changes, but uh, the people that are clutching their chests in fear could probably have their fears alleviated a little bit. And the people that are cheering for all ills will be resolved to probably bring their enthusiasm down a little bit that, that we're going to be, a lot more towards the middle that that a lot's going to change but there are going to be major aspects that are going to still be running down the middle is that a pretty fair assessment I think out of necessity yeah i think uh you know the biden administration and congress are going to have to to find a way to uh, yeah to work across the lines a little bit at least or at least uh within their own caucus to to, to serve both moderates and progressives so yeah i i think I think that you know the tone of the rhetoric, certainly coming from the White House, will change significantly, and I think that the the attitude towards higher education will be less punitive, certainly, uh, from the White House. 
and then it and then it remains to to be seen how how quickly uh, and how uh, effectively Democrats can can uh, corral their caucus to get some legislation through that that will uh, bring some money to Ira. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time, Eric. If anybody wants to see Eric's other articles, as he said, he works for the Chronicle of Higher Education. And then I will put the their link in as well as you can follow him on Twitter. Is at there, are there? At E-T-K-E-L-D, at E-T-K-E-L-D. Okay, at E-T-K-E-L-D. And so I greatly appreciate your input and your insight and your time. And uh, we look forward to seeing what what actually happens after all the speculation is over and, and we see what the next year looks like. So thank you for your time and for joining us, Eric. Thanks, Tyler. It was, it was my pleasure. I appreciate it. Okay. That's all for today's episode of Lab Chats. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new Lab Chats episode is posted each week. We'll see you next time.